Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelly Spivey, your host for the channel, and today I'll be talking to Bobby J. Smith II about his book, Food, Power, Politics, The Food Story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, which is available from the University of North Carolina Press this month. Bobby is an assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Bobby. It's really great to have you here today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be a part of this. Yeah, so I'd like to get started by getting to know you and your background a little bit better. Um, Tell me how you became interested in this concept of food power politics and what kind of led you to write this book. Yeah, I... Writing this book was uh, a labor of love, uh, perseverance, and discipline. I started this, this, the project started as a dissertation idea that I had. Um, In the spring of 2016, I took a course called Community Organizing and Development, and we were learning about how different models of organizing, different moments in history where people organized around issues that they found important in their everyday lives. And at the time, I was learning more about the justice side of the food system. So I have a background in agriculture, agriculture economics. But by the time I got into my PhD program, I was thinking about food and ag, but from a justice standpoint. So what does it mean to place social justice at the center of issues around agriculture and food? So I was taking a class and I was learning about um, again, community development. There was a book by Charles Payne called I've Got the Light of Freedom, which is about the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. And during the class, our professor pushed us to always think about organizing, but from our own viewpoint, our own research. So I was thinking about, so as I'm reading about the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, I'm thinking about food. So Charles Payne's book is like 400 pages long. 
And I'm like, every page, I'm like, okay, where's food at? Because I'm looking for food. Although I'm reading about organizing, I keep hearing my professor who went on to become my dissertation advisor just kept saying, you know, make sure you're looking for your project in the work. So I'm reading the chapters. Chapter one, there's no food. Chapter two, three, four, five, there's no food. But then I get to chapter five and it's like around page like 158. I remember the page number because it was just such an interesting moment. Where I where food shows up in the story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, um, and we can talk more about where it shows up later on. But that's where I first saw food in the movement. I I never thought about, I knew about the Civil Rights Movement, but when I've learned about it in the past, it's been about voting rights or education or some of those issues, and I never thought about food at the center. And it was in reading Payne's book that I first got introduced to a food moment. Um, in the larger history of the civil rights movement. Now, Payne's book is not about food, so Payne didn't write a lot about the food part of it, but there was a moment in the book that I took from his book and then I made it my own book from that one moment in his book. You're on mute now. I can't hear you. This is why I hate this stuff. <laughs> can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Editing. Um <laughs> I love that you put food at the center of that because, and we'll get into this, you know, as we talk through the book, but it's so clear how integral it is to so many different aspects of the movement from the side of oppression to the side of the oppressed. Like it's just everywhere. Um, So I think it gives a really interesting way of looking at things, um, which I think, you know, we can kind of dive in a little bit. I, I want to talk a little bit about emancipatory, emancipatory food power. Can you, how do you define that? Yeah, so now this is, this is good because so the title Food Power Politics is also the theoretical framework, conceptual framework that I uh, created to make sense of this food story that I tell. So um, when people think about, so 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 when I brought up Payne's book, in chapter five of Payne's book, he talks about how food was used as a weapon against civil rights activists and their community. So food as a, as a tool for voter suppression. And in response, activists in their communities uh, organized their own food programs as a way to counter weaponize food. So legal scholars, political scientists, historians use the term food power to describe moments where um, during international conflict, one nation withholds food from another nation as a way to mitigate the impact of the crisis. So food is used as a weapon against this nation. Also, it's classic wartime tactics. Many times, centuries ago, whenever two com- no, two nations or two uh, different opposing groups were in war in times of crisis, one could be able to manipulate their access to food or their means to grow it. So I took this big meta concept at the international level and transposed it into thinking about it in everyday black life. But as I transposed it into black life, it failed to capture the responses of those who were being acted upon. So it helped me understand how food was used as a weapon against black communities, but not how they in turn counter weaponized. So I theorized how they were able to counter weaponize as emancipatory food power. So they're using food as a way to emancipate themselves from food power being used against them. But when you read those two things together, the tensions and the struggles surrounding it is what I call food power politics. 
politics picks picks up on the ideas of they're struggling for for power. And what I and 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 what I wanted to to capture was that many times when we tell stories of the past, when it's struggles between those who are oppressed and those who are oppressing them, we tend to tell the story of how they're being oppressed and not how they respond. So we stripped them of their agency and their autonomy. And I wanted to be able to capture that. And I saw it as this emancipatory vision they had, this emancipatory practice. Um, Obviously, I have a very more formulated definition in the book. But for me, that's how I was seeing it. I I, I understood how food was used as a weapon against these communities, but I wasn't able to capture how they responded. And I really wanted to show both sides of that food story. Yeah, I think agency is such a huge part of these stories that gets missed a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a lot more about, I, he- I hesitate to say victimization, but it does yeah. portray people a lot in that light without, and that's what I love about your book is that it shows that they weren't victims right, all right. the time. You know, right. like they, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would love to jump into the first chapter, which is, about food for freedom and the Greenwood food blockade. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to do this. Maybe if we can talk a little bit about what food access kind of looks like for sharecroppers in Mississippi in the sixties, the, you know, what the federal surplus commodities program is to kind of set a good base. Um, Yeah. If you could just, Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so 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 the context for chapter one, so the Greenwood Food Blockade, or what we're now calling the Green, they weren't calling it the blockade then, but as activists reflected on it, they now call it a food blockade. Some people call it the food cutoff. Uh, some people just call it the food moment. Like some people don't even acknowledge it. So it's interesting to how how we call it, well, how it's been called a blockade now, and how and why we're and even using the word blockade already signals a type of shift in the politics of the struggle. But the context surrounding the Greenwood Food Blockade is that during the 1960s, uh, uh, poor rural black communities who were uh, of people who were mostly sharecroppers or tenant farmers or day laborers or farm laborers or farm workers, they access food in three different ways. And the first way they tended to access food was actually on the land. So usually, so you're from the South. So if you ever go like into rural parts of the South and you uh, see these large fields, uh, 60 years ago, there were plantation shacks on these fields. So in between massive rows of cotton, you would see these plantation shacks. And on the side, sometimes the plantation owners would give sharecroppers what they called a truck patch or a truck garden on the side of their shacks to grow uh, vegetables to raise livestock, hogs, raise chickens, and things like that. That was one way they accessed food. The other way they would access food was through this for federal surplus commodities program. People know this government cheese, government peanut butter. What we what we what we talk about now, but back then, it was known as a supplemental program, but it was surplus food. So it was mostly. Um, it was a federal program that was created in the 1930s as a form of welfare relief. So the Federal Surplus Commodities Program is located at the intersection of, the, of course, the Department of Agriculture, but also welfare. 
because it's a compromise between those two different agencies or at that time. So that was the second way they would access food. So they would go to, uh, so it just depends on where you were located. In the Mississippi Delta, it was, well, the Yazoo Mississippi Delta, there was one or two ways you could get it, whether you can go down to the county courthouse and get your 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 um, rations, if you will, or access the program, or the plantation owner would actually disperse the sur- the federal surplus commodities on the actual plantation grounds or through the commissary. So there were a number of ways that, that people did it. And then the third way was the um, the food stamp program was later the food stamp program. So that was a, that's kind of like the context where then what the context teaches us, those three different ways of them accessing food is actually that they never were in full control of their ability to access food. So for them, they were dependent on some type of power structure or some type of system to feed them. And while the Federal Surplus Commodities Program was not nutritious, it was not designed to uh, promote health, you know, healthy outcomes, what we think of healthy outcomes now, but it was a way to keep the labor full. And I, and it's, and I'm hesitant to, to, to say it like that, but that's really where, where we are in terms of thinking about the 1960s and sharecroppers, because they're part of a system and black bodies are considered as a site of labor, not as actual humans, but as an input into a larger equation designed to enhance the lives of plantation owners at the time. So for them, those were one the three ways they would access food. And that kind of provides the context for understanding the Greenwood food blockade. Yeah, and they were very dependent on accessing food that way because even the truck patch could be kind of um, commandeered for cotton or whatever it needed to be if if needed um, so yeah they really just have very little control it seems like yeah so it would so it would so it would be the truck I want to make sure I had this right too which I'm glad you asked that question because the three ways is so the federal food stamp program and the surplus commodities are together and then they also access food through commissaries, grocery stores on the actual plantation grounds. So commissaries, federal food programs, or truck patches. And, I, and I'm glad I'm glad I look back at the book and to remember the the grocery store part because the commissary is an important part of the plantation experience, and we tend to overlook the importance of that commissary store and what and, and what it's what it served and what it signifies of the past. And I mean, what do you think that it signifies? I, the commissary for me, and, and and we'll get more into chapter two, because I never, I, I knew what a commissary was and what it was designed to do. I, I never realized the connection to actual wholesale grocery stores. So commissaries sold goods and things of that nature, but they also only sold those because of contractual agreements with actual wholesalers. So it, it shows like the plantation is not just some farm that exists on thousands of acres and poor black people are working the land and there's a white plantation owner overlooking them. This is a very sophisticated operation and the commissary played a major role in getting whether food to sharecroppers, but also 
what they would call furnishing. So they would furnish the food. They also they would furnish uh, seeds and uh, um, sacks to uh, for cotton sacks and things of that nature. So for me, the commissary isn't just um, just a building on it. In fact, it's a, a set of of business dealings and contractual agreements that pretty much uh, sustain the lives of those who are working on the plantations. So we have this sort of limited access to food or very controlled access to food. Mm-hmm. How does that turn into, how is that weaponized? Right, right, right. So, so, so what happens is, so, so by 1960, so, so I'm going to tell the, I'm going to answer the question. I'm going to go at it in thinking about the civil rights movement as a story and not the food part of it first. So so by 19, so what happens in Greenwood is that Greenwood, Mississippi um, used to be known as the cotton capital of the world. Um, it's in between Vicksburg. It's like right at the halfway point between Memphis, Tennessee and Vicksburg, Mississippi. So it's like the heart of the Delta, uh, the heart of the Mississippi Delta in the state of Mississippi. And what happens is why Greenwood is so important and why LaFleur County, which is where Greenwood is located, is so important is because it is, at the time, it's the headquarters of the White Citizens Council, the emblematic white supremacist organization of the South at the time. Then it's also this place where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee also sets up their headquarters. So their headquarters are literally basically on the same street, but on two different sides of town. The White Sisters Council is downtown right by the courthouse, and then SNCC is located in Black Greenwood. So we think about the geography, Greenwood is like this epicenter of white supremacy and black freedom, like right there together. And then, what is it, five year, five or so years later, the slogan Black Power is actually, the first time the slogan Black Power takes on a life of itself also happens in Greenwood. So Greenwood, Mississippi is an important site. So by the 1960s, when SNCC comes into town, people are upset. There's violence everywhere. Uh, The White Sisters Council, although they never were about physical violence, they believed in structural violence and violence that would be able to, um, in in, in many ways, they weren't the Ku Klux Klan, they weren't the KKK. And, 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 and they separate themselves. The White Sisters Council was a group of white businessmen and bankers and politicians and people like that. So they had a lot of power in the, in, in the area and their headquarters was in LaFleur County at the time. So when the movement came into Mississippi, activists argue that there was a decision. Uh, there was a meeting in November of 1962 to discuss the federal surplus commodities program. So every so anytime there was no cotton crop in the ground, what we found was that they would always talk about when they needed this federal food program, because, again, it was a way to sustain their labor when there was no cotton crop in the ground. So November's here and, and they're harvesting cotton in, and there's a meeting that's held in downtown Greenwood to discuss the future of this federal surplus commodities program in LaFleur County. And what ends up happening is that there's this big meeting, but only white citizens are allowed to come. No black people are allowed to come, but 95, 90% of the program was used by poor rural black people in the area. So at this meeting, they decide that they're going to dismantle, get rid of the federal surplus commodities program. 
and 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 on the surface when you're reading about it or you hear about it they're, they're, they're saying the reason why they're getting rid of the program is not feasible, it's not financially feasible, we don't have the money to do what we need to do. But activists read this as, no, you're actually trying to starve the very communities that we're trying to organize in. So when we think about Greenwood in the moment, you have activists who are trying to organize in rural Black communities where people's lives are linked to the future of plantations. So they vote and they get rid of the program in November of 1962 and activists immediately see this not as something that we should just overlook. In fact, this is one of the first times they're attempting to change the rules of social struggle. Before they were sicking dogs, before they were they they were they were um, burning down buildings and lynching people, but now they've decided that we're going to go a step further and starve people into compliance. And this is reminiscent of, of how slave masters did the enslaved people um, during times of slavery. But that's the first moment that the Greenwood Food Blockade starts is when the LaFleur County Board of Supervisors decides to get rid of the federal surplus commodities program that particular winter. And activists made the connection between that winter was the first time that SNCC and a lot of movement people were coming into Greenwood because they believed if they could flip Greenwood, they could flip any city or any town or any rural community across the South because you have this powerful white supremacist organization dictating the entire um, politics around the entire region at the time. And so the response to that was food for freedom. Yes. Tell me everything about it. <laughs> it so food for freedom is, I, I I gave a talk about maybe three or four months ago, and I this is the first time I'd ever actually thought about ways to visualize food for freedom. And I actually put it on a map and put the, the points on the map and I had this really nice slide that kind of like shows Greenwood where it says, it's really nice. And I couldn't believe how massive food for freedom. So food for freedom, so in response to the dismantling of the federal surplus commodities program, activists had to slow down on their organizing around voting rights because they couldn't make sense of how can I ask people to vote when they don't have anything to eat. And in many ways, we're the reason why they don't have anything to eat because they're casualties, because the move was designed to cripple the movement and the casualties that get crippled are those who are dependent on this federal food program. So what they ended up doing was they had to create their own program and they started thinking about how can we get food into our region? How are we going to take care of these communities when we're the very reason why they are, well, we're not the reason why they're starving, but we are a part of this equation that has them hungry. So what they do is they begin a letter writing campaign and they dispatch their, their, their network. So you have the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you have the NAACP National Association, um, NAACP, um, you have uh, SCLC, a Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference. You have all these organizations, that, they call themselves COFO in Mississippi, which was the Council of Federated Organizations. So all these people were working around civil rights, 
and black activists and other activists are all organizing around COFO. So I bring all that up to say that Food for Freedom was born out of that network. And but they realized that food was important. It's the first time that food actually takes center stage in the civil rights movement. This is the first time that food had been used as a weapon against communities. We we observed something similar in Tennessee in 1960. But this is the first time that they take food on at the national level. So Food for Freedom is this multi-scale, multi-level, multi-state. I mean, you have people, so they build this network and it works at the, the local level, the regional level, then also at the national level. So the local level you have, there's um, a number of activists who take center stage. Uh, people like Mrs. Vera Pagui, uh, people like Ella Edwards, um, Willie Peacock makes center stage. So all these people who are not your, who, who are not normally named when we think about civil rights history or civil rights stories. But they organize this, 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 this translocal alternative food system that brings in thousands of pounds of food. Um, people are bringing food from Chicago. So Dick Gregory, Black comedian Dick Gregory takes center stage because he's bringing food from Chicago. People are bringing food from Compton, California, uh, Iowa City, Iowa, um, New York City, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, where else were they bringing food from? Ann Arbor, Michigan, Louisville, Kentucky. And they're doing this at a time where there's no text messages, there's no emails. So people aren't saying, hey, you know, we're organizing food. Can you drop it off on the corner and we'll pick it up? No, they're writing letters. So it's a letter writing campaign. It's a food pipeline. It's a translocal food program. You got people handling logistics on the ground. You have people also handling logistics at the national level. But then there's also this organizing level where people are also in Washington, D.C., petitioning the government to bring back the federal surplus commodities program because it's still needed. So you have this, so Food for Freedom is not only a food program, it also in and of itself was, this, in many ways, it was a food pipeline, but it was also a, a an experiment because they had never worked with food before. Like this is like, this is, activists were, um, um, uh, Robert Moses, uh, Bob Moses, who passed away, I want to say last year, um, was the head of SNCC in Mississippi at the time. And he wrote a letter in 1963 to people who were donating food. And he was saying, you know, we've never seen this before. We've never had to actually do this kind of work around food. And food actually is a catalyst for actually getting people to come vote. Because now they realize that we're not only, you know, stirring up trouble, if you will, good trouble with, you know, with the white power structure there, but we can also feed people. And Food for Freedom ends up creating an opportunity for one, for them to actually um, enhance the voter registration efforts, but it also shows the power of food and how food connects people together. But also what it does, it creates an opportunity for often overlooked actors and leaders to take center stage. We know food is gendered, so it's not surprising that women took center stage in actually organizing the Food for Freedom program. But what is so interesting about it is that the logistics and how they organized this ma massive program in the 1960s, where basically you have food coming from every corner of the nation into Mississippi in 19 for at least for, for six months. This big program is going on and they are literally transforming beauty shops and homes and corner store outlets and restaurants into storage areas. 
So you have food everywhere. Now, there was never enough food to feed everybody. So there's a number of reports about people running out of food. Rightfully so. I mean, you this is a time where you're thinking about storage. You're thinking about perishable goods versus non-perishable. But for me, food for freedom is 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 something that helps us think about how we can organize cross geographically today. And it was it was something that they didn't plan but had no choice to do. And it wasn't as co it over the months as it evolved, it became more coherent. But the Food for Freedom program was an experiment. An experiment in how do we begin to conceptualize food at the center of our movement and how food is more important than politics at the time and people needed to eat. I mean, that was a big part of the Food for Freedom program. Born out of necessity. Yep. You know, um, I'm just, I'm kind of struck by the incredible amount of coordination it had to have required to do all of that across the country and locally. Yeah, I I just... Yeah, wanted I, to break that up because yeah, that's and, an incredible that's, undertaking. Right, and that's why when again, like, see, in, in writing it, I'm just just thinking about the narrative and the arguments and connected dots. But when I finally took a step back, I was like, this really is. This takes a lot of, of moving. It's a lot of moving pieces, and and that's why in the book I kind of break it down from regional, local, and national because. At the national level, you have people communicating across the, the nation with the, the the power of writing letters, um, like the the email blast, if you will. We, we call it email blast now, but the amount of letters and, and how people organized and how people understood that this was a moment where food was actually used as a weapon, as a form of voter suppression. And one... Food for Freedom also represents an analysis because they understood that the power structure is strategically withholding food from us because they don't want the movement to take life in a place like Mississippi because they knew if Mississippi could get it right, then then we could then we can go into Alabama and we can go into Georgia and Louisiana and Texas and all in Arkansas and Tennessee and other places. So so Food for Freedom required a lot of coordination and it required a lot of people to 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 become leaders um, at the time and the coordination is just mind-blowing because you have people are also organizing concerts so in california they had a food for freedom concert um as a way and they had all these famous people coming in to the concert and donating food you have people like dick gregory and chicago becomes a really big part of this too because chicago circulates they have these food for freedom depots all over the south, south and west side of Chicago, and then you have Memphis, and Memphis becomes a hub. Uh, but then also you have college students who are involved, who are trying to get in the movement, and they're trying to figure out how do we, you know, what can be our role. And they're like, well, we have this food issue. And again, they were not trying to get into the food business. SNCC was not organized to be a food organization. They were just trying to get people to vote because they thought that voting was going to be the way to freedom. And rightfully so at the time, that's the the way they were thinking. But when food gets into the conversation, it changes the entire game and they have to think quickly. But thankfully, they had already had a network in place and they just were able to transform the network in place into this massive food organization. Uh, and food was being flown in, food was being driven in, 
And then in um, in three of the major counties, uh, in Sunflower County, uh, uh, Coloma County, um, and also LaFleur County are the three major counties where the Food for Freedom program in Mississippi had their different depots. And what's cool about the Sunflower County one is that Fannie Lou Hamer's home ends up being the food hub. So so what we call food hubs today, Fannie Lou Hamer turned her, her home right there on Lafayette Street in Ruleville into a food depot. So people said they were going to the house and see food everywhere. And it's just, and and for, for us, you know, thinking about food and looking back, this is a major moment. And for them, it's just like, we just got to feed these people because we need them to vote. And but for us, it's it's more than just voting. And activists began to see like, wait, oh, these people needed food even after the Greenwood Food Bank like quote unquote ends. People still need food, and they recognize there's a bigger issue at play. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but it is very reminiscent of a lot of reactions that we've had in the past few years to things and how that has come into play, but I don't want to give away like too much of the book because <laughs> we do have a modern day connection at the end. Yeah. Um, so how do, how do we go from, we go from the surplus program to food stamps. Yeah. What is, what does that do in terms of food access and, and the community? Yeah. Food stamps. Why well, it's, and of course, what we would call SNAP today, uh, SNAP benefits, foods. <laughs> to be fully transparent, food. I didn't know I was going to write about food stamps in the book. I put it that way. I knew that food stamps was going to come up, but I didn't think that I was going to take it on how I took it on. So thinking about the transition between chapter one and then going into chapter two, where food stamps take center stage, is that. When I went to Mississippi, what was that, six years ago when I started the archival research for this project, as I was trying to learn more about the Greenwood food blockade, I was reading the newspapers a lot. So what is interesting about this food story I tell is that it played out in the media. So, but not mainstream media, well, the New York Times covered it too, but it, it's, it never, it, it, didn't, it didn't get the national, the nation's attention. So as I'm reading about the Greenwood Food Blockade, I'm also reading about this growing movement of white grocery store owners in Mississippi wanting people, wanting the state to get the food stamp program. And they, but they want food stamps not to feed people. They want food stamps as a way to ensure their businesses can thrive in poor communities where people don't have the means to actually, pay, you know, go to these stores. So food stamps, so so when thinking about food stamps, we have to also remember that food stamps started in the 1930s. And then so 1939 to 1943 was the first iteration of a food stamp program. Um, and it started in Rochester, New York. And the food stamp program was just another form of, of aid to help people who were struggling, but they saw it as giving people more freedom in, in choosing their food purchases, so giving people more purchasing power. But even from the beginning, the discourses surrounding food stamps really had nothing to do with feeding people and everything to do with ensuring that commercial food outlets could survive in poor communities. 
So while we think about food stamps today is feeding people, this is not, that was not the business, the name of the game. So what happens is, so as the Greenwood food blockade is ending in 1963, white grocery store owners are igniting a food stamp campaign because they want to get rid of the federal surplus commodities program because they never liked it because they didn't like free food handouts. And they argued that the federal surplus commodities program was actually cutting into or creating competition with tax paying retailers. Okay, so you know all this land you know, so so this so what happens is is that while activists are trying to organize to get the federal surplus commodities food program back, they have food for freedom going on, there's this whole other different conversation going on one county over. Um about trying to get food stamps into the region. But as activists begin to see is that once they realized that federal food programs were never uh, controlled by people that they would end up voting for or, or they could end up creating people, uh, vote for people in, in political power who could actually control these programs, they just saw food stamps as another way for people to be controlled by the power structure. Because it's not that food stamps as a legislation is inherently um, biased or unequal, but what happens when food stamps is in the hands of different people, different power players? So food stamps comes on the scene just because it's just at the same time as this, this green food blockade happens. But when food stamps comes, there's a big push to get it because they don't want to give free food out to people anymore. Um, and that's kind of how we get into food stamps. It just it was this, this campaign that I didn't think that I was going to go as far into. And then once I the food stamps campaign, but once I realized what was happening, it showed me that there's a longer story of food power that's connected to commissaries and politicians and grocery stores. And food stamps comes on the scene because when, because once the food stamp bill is passed in 1964, what happens is there's an amendment before it passes and the amendment says any county that has the federal surplus commodities program, if they want food stamps, they can't have both programs. So any county that got food stamps had to get rid of the free food program. So everybody was forced to get food stamps. But back then, in order to get food stamps, you had to also have an income. And back then, a lot of black sharecroppers didn't have a quote-unquote income. So they were dependent on grocery stores and their plantation owners to give them credit to get food stamps. But food stamps also comes at the same time the plantation system in the South is collapsing. So people don't have jobs. People are being pushed off plantations. So you're pushing them off plantations and they need free food more than anything, but now you're telling them they have to have food stamps. And food stamps, again, to those who are in power is not about feeding people. It's about ensuring that grocery outlets and these interest groups are able to maintain their power. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing there is they're kind of trying to shift shift it into a more um, capitalistic area just so that they can control it a little more, but also that it is controlling food in a different way in that now they have to go, they have to go to these stores where they may already be a potentially dangerous space to be in they're now forced to put themselves in that space yep and that's the reason why um that's the reason why i call chapter two another kind of oppression one because fang hammer gives this speech in the late 1960s about now they're you know, overnight they bring food stamps into our communities, and this is another kind of oppression because what, as you said, the, the the power, what what I'm what I'm getting at and thinking about this shift is that it shows how people, how far people will go to stay in power, and that's what I really wanted to do with whether it's a federal surplus commodities program or a food stamp program is that it's about power. But not just some type of some type because we often say power and never fully define what that means. And this is power over people, like the capacity to decide people's futures, people's food futures and things of that nature. So food stamps just becomes another mechanism, but it creates a different level of power over particularly poor world black people because as you said before people were forced to go to grocery stores so before they had the free food program they didn't have to go to grocery stores but white grocery store owners were upset because they were saying our labor would rather go to well the labor of the region would rather go get a handout instead of coming to support um how do they put it coming to support um traditional or um basically um, proper channels, there it is, proper channels uh, to get food. So if you want to get food, no, you're hungry, we get it. And we don't want to deny anybody food, but if you want to get food, there's only one way you can do it, and you have to go through our grocery stores. And that created a whole different level of inequality because what people have reported and observed in the past is that activists argued that when people did have food stamps, they would raise prices for items that, so if you wanted to get like some meat or something, you would actually pay more because they knew you were paying with food stamps and they were able to get a cut out of it. And that's some of the the, the conversation, but I use food stamps as an entry point to kind of, to make connections between plantation culture, grocery stores and food inequalities and things like that. It's really sinister is how I would describe that. (laughs) Disgusting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and yeah, I don't know that I can find another word sinister well, and disgusting. Yeah. And, 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 and for me, it's uh, and, and and what I wanted to do with bringing in food stamps is that I wanted to bring a different player to the to the civil rights conversation. Is that 
we never think about grocery stores in the story of the civil rights movement. But grocery stores were also a battleground for a number of issues, whether it is sharecroppers going into grocery stores and not being able to pick out their own food and that their plantation owners would decide, well, no, I know you want bacon, but no, you're getting this. I know you want cookies for your children, but no, you're getting this. So it goes back to what we said earlier about agency and autonomy. Everything about these programs strips people of their basic agency and autonomy, and they're forced to depend on a system that only sees them as a unit of labor. And once the plantation system collapses, they're no longer needed. But how do you keep, but if people can't leave, how are you going to make money in that region? Well, we're going to give food stamps. Because if they have food stamps, they have no choice but to come to us. And if they can't get food stamps, we'll create a food stamp loan program. So we'll loan them food stamps to keep them in further debt and dependent on the white power structure. And that's what the food stamp program did uh, in the hands of those who were in, in Mississippi. And but not to give too much about the book away, but what I like about chapter two is how it's so connected to the president of the United States. And that is what really, I didn't know, I didn't know how far I was gonna go. And as I was writing it, it was, it's, I'm laughing because I was talking to a friend of mine about it and uh, she actually read some of the earlier versions and she was like, I'm sitting there like, she's like, I wanna pop popcorn and like just read this chapter. Cause it really is a movie. I mean, it's, it's like, I was like, I just could as I was writing page by page, I was like, it just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I couldn't believe it because I had never thought about so many players um, in this whole food, food, it's a lot. It's just, it's just a lot. It's a lot. I know. I had to, I, I had to keep rereading it because I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> like what is happening right, right. now? <laughs> And it, and it happened so, and when I wrote, I was like, I was, I, I just, I just said that I was like, wow, like this is, I had to stop myself and make sure I was, make sure I wasn't missing anything. And it's, and what's interesting, what's, and it's, it's the evidence that supports the argument. So it's not that just I'm making a case that food stamps is economic, was used as a way to weaponize food. But there's also evidence of conversations and letters and paper trails and things like that. And for me, chapter two, what, what, what I liked about it the most was that I want us to start thinking about all these players in our food conversations. And we also need to think about who is over these grocery stores and what are they lobbying for? Um, and what are their motives? And it's about motives um, and and how they and how they know what systems to use to get what they want. And they don't mind aligning themselves with white supremacy or inequality as a way to get what they need. But they mask it in this free enterprise system, uh, the spirit of entrepreneurship, uh, the American dream. You know, all these things they cloak it in. <laughs> but as we know, but you're cloaking in, in this American dream, but you're also using these sinister, these disgusting means to basically control people's food lives, which food is a very, which is why I'm glad Fanny Hammer called it another kind of oppression, because when you're starving people or controlling their ability to access food in certain ways, that's a very intimate kind of oppression. Um, hunger is, 
is not just, you know, this commercial where we see, you know, people running around hungry or kids or how we want to situate the whole third world versus first world conversation, but it's an intimate feeling. And if you've never been hungry, then you don't know how that feels or if you've never been hungry for long periods of time. And these, these communities were literally being starved to death or starved into compliance. And when they wouldn't act with this, whether you would leave or you would have to stay there and navigate those kinds of systems. So now that, now that we've kind of talked about like the worst system ever, um, (laughs) I want to talk about agency again, and I want to get into chapter three with the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative. Yeah. Yes. So this is, oh, I, I, so, so ending chapter two on food stamps and then beginning chapter three with thinking about activist Elsie Dorsey and how she understood what was going on, how she understood that food stamps was never designed to feed people or benefit families. It was always designed to benefit the merchants. She also understood that this plantation economy is failing and we need to figure out how we're going to rebuild our lives on the ruins of these plantations. Because while we talk about the great migrations a lot, the first or second one, millions of black people leaving the South in the 60s, fleeing plantations because they don't have anywhere to work. There were thousands of people who never left the South, black, poor, rural black people who never left the South. And how were they able to rebuild their lives? How were they able to to promote agency and autonomy. And I believe the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative is one of those mechanisms that they created um, in response to, to, to recognizing that you already have, agriculture in and of itself is not oppressive. What makes agriculture or growing food or farming oppressive is when it is funneled through an oppressive system. But what the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative teaches us is that Black people were able, literally on the ruins of plantations, they were able to create this food cooperative, but it's more than a cooperative. It's, 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 it's as I write about it, it's, it's reminiscent of the Food for Freedom program, but at a different level. And I, and I say because it takes, the word I said earlier makes sense, is a good word to use, coordination. The level of coordination needed to create the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative. So, so the, the Farm Cooperative is also a part of, it was part of a wave of a number of cooperatives being created in the South, uh, particularly in Mississippi. You have Freedom Farms Cooperative, uh, which Fannie Hamer's was Fannie Hamer's Cooperative, which was uh, one county over from the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative. But what made this cooperative so different than other black cooperatives at the time was one, it was the largest cooperative in the state. And two, its origin story is located in actually food as a form of medicine. So so the cooperative is born out of this idea of a rural healthcare clinic. And the healthcare clinic comes to Mississippi and to, to the Delta, to Mount Bayou, and it is attempting to understand some of the major health issues that are happening in the region amongst these people. But what happens is they soon realize that the people are not sick because they have things like the flu and things like that. In fact, they're sick because they don't have food. 
and they don't have nutritious food and they can't even afford to get food because they're too poor to even get food stamps because you had to have some type of income to purchase food stamps. So it's a, it's, it's the conditions are deplorable. It's a lot going on. But what the people did have is they knew how to grow food and they knew how to 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 create a systems of 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 of, of, of different types of communities coming together and helping each other. Um, traditionally, it's a cultural experience of the of the people who were there at the time. So what ends up happening is they create this cooperative. Well, so they 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 so the health. So the health center is now saying that if food is the issue, then we need to do food prescriptions. So they're writing prescriptions for food, but then they're thinking about, we need something that's gonna last a little longer because the healthcare program is also a part of the war on poverty. So I'm gonna take a step back and bring up the war on poverty because the food stamp program was designed to be a part of the war on poverty, Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society program. And they argued that the food stamp program would end up being one of the greatest weapons in against America's idea of poverty or whatever. So, but they also gave money towards creating these healthcare centers. Um, so the healthcare, one of the healthcare centers that was built in Mississippi was a part of the war on poverty programs. So once they figure out that they're giving food prescriptions, they're like, no, that's not what we gave you money to do. You can't be giving these people food prescriptions. And the doctors are all like, and the healthcare workers are like, well, no, actually these people are malnourished and hungry. And the, and the actual prescription for taking care of malnourishment is giving people nutritious food. But they didn't want to do that. So they, so, so they, started, um, they started throwing around this idea of creating a garden. What we would see as an urban farm, community garden now. But soon enough, it became from a garden idea to a larger idea. Um, and the larger idea becomes they want to create an actual farm cooperative but the farm cooperative also operated a network of grocery stores in 12 communities in North Bolivar County. And I have the map in the book where I show like those 12 communities, each community had its own grocery store, but they also had its own, but they had their own farm as well. And they had the, uh, the meat locker, the frozen food locker in another area. So they created their own food system. Literally, they grew the food, they actually packaged the food, they transported the food to every single grocery store. They also created all these programs. And what it does is it shows that people knew how to, to take care of themselves. They just needed the resources. But what I liked about the North Bavar County Farm Cooperative is that 70% of its members were Black women, uh, uh, their uh, charter members. And uh, activist Elsie Dorsey ends up being the only woman to ever actually take over the cooperative. And when she's the leader of the cooperative, it thrives. I mean, she's she's there and she's making, I mean, they're doing conferences, they're doing business training, she's traveling around, she's getting land, uh, she's getting resources to, to work the land. And they do this as a way to emancipate themselves from dependence on a commercial food environment or a federal food system or welfare system that is designed to keep them hungry.
And they're saying we want to be able to control our own lives. But they also work with the cooperative is also working with pre-existing networks. So they're working with universities across the nation around agricultural practices. They're doing economic conferences. They're bringing in people from all over the nation. So, again, I like what you were saying about coordination because they're doing a lot in the 1960s with very minimal resources. And they're doing all of this because they recognize that we have to find ways to emancipate ourselves from this system that is designed to kill us. And it is a matter of life or death, because if people don't have the kind of food they need, then they are going to end up not being developed or they're also going to end up dying from starvation. And that is what the activists understood, but it was activists, it was doctors, it was university personnel, they were writing grants. Today we write grants all the time for our food programs and things of that nature. They were doing all of this. They had this massive program that that was an extension of the civil rights movement. And these activists read this is that this is the next stage of the civil rights movement. Voting rights and education was our entry point. We want to control our entire lives and we want to use something that we already know. And they 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 already knew how to grow food. They already knew how to work the land, but they had to reestablish themselves and reimagine their relationships with the land because previously before this, they're working the land, but they're being oppressed. But now they're actually having the agency autonomy to decide when, where and how they access food. And the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative, to me, was one of the most important experiments in the second stage of the civil rights movement. Because the, sec- the, the next stage was being able to control their entire lives. And they saw voting rights as a means to do that. But that was just the entry point. It was never supposed to stop there. But when we rehearse stories of the movement, we overlook things like the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative because we don't see that as voting rights. We don't see this education or civil rights story. But in fact, these the, the people who were running the cooperative, majority of them had been activists and were activists. And they saw this as an extension of the movement. And what this what Food for Freedom did in 1962 and 1963, creating a space for often overlooked actors to take center stage, the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative did the same thing. The people that I named in that chapter, people probably never heard of them before in their entire lives, and their names might not ever be written again in another book. But I really wanted to to talk more about them, and majority of them, we don't know their stories, we don't know where they're from. A lot of times we don't know a lot about their families. What we do know is that their name is in the records and their names should be printed for us to know that there were a lot of people. It wasn't just two or three people in the offshoot of the movement. This was a highly sophisticated system of farms, grocery stores, storage, transportation. And then, you know, the cooperative also had dreams of doing things even more. They wanted to create a soul food, canned canned food, soul food line. They wanted to create a a, a food processing plant. They really wanted to create their own, it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to find the best word to describe what they were doing because they essentially wanted to create an autonomous 
commercial food environment for created for them by them. Um, yeah, and it's it's almost like how we think about supermarket systems today, but they controlled everything in that particular region, but they did it not because they wanted to per se, one was out of necessity, but then two, they also did it because they understood that we want to be able to control our entire lives. And it doesn't make sense for us to be able to vote and we can't eat. It doesn't make sense for us to be able to go to school and we can't feed ourselves. And I wanted to amplify that angle of the story because we don't talk about that side of the movement enough. And it's not just, oh, um, you have to fuel the movement. So the folks got to eat. It's deeper than just having to eat. Uh, it's, it's deeper than just giving some people, people something to eat. These The people in Chapter 3 created an entire system for them and also recognized that they had to have the power to take care of themselves and secure their own features. And they operated, it was like 500 square miles, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And like I know, I know this is a, an, an audio, but it was just me making my brain explode a little bit because it is just a, a huge undertaking. And I really love that you print so many names of people. Um, a lot of them, these kind of community bridge leaders, mm-hmm. as you call them in the book, because it just makes it so much more a part of their everyday life. Like, it, this is what we have to do. And that's what it is, is that, is, is that the cooperative is, is it, it, it's special in how we're looking back at it and thinking about it. But for them, they were just trying to get something to eat. They were just trying to feed their families. We're looking back and we're like, oh, this is food justice. Oh, this is food security. Oh, this is food sovereignty. This is land sovereignty. And for us, and for them, it's just like, we just trying to feed ourselves because for so long, the power structures in place have been trying to keep us from feeding ourselves. And I really wanted to show how those women and the men that helped them out, how they, how they, it's how they, how they understood not only what they were doing in the everyday, but they also had an analysis for why they were doing what they were doing. And that's what I, really wanted to get, I, I wanted to show that side of it because Food for Freedom was a program that was temporary. It was never designed to go a long time. Voting rights were being attacked. We need people to vote. They need to eat, get them some food. That's it. North Baltimore County Farm Cooperative, Voting Rights Act is done. Civil Rights Act is passed. We're, we're talking, this is like, the this is the post-1965 movement. So we won in quotations, we won voting rights, we won civil rights and things of that nature, but we still don't have jobs and we still don't have food. So, and that's also what, what I didn't mention. The cooperative was also a huge source of employment. And that's also what to recognize. They said, we, we need food and jobs. And, that, the, and even not to get ahead of myself, but when I think about the work today, I always mention it in any spaces I go in is that this is about food, but people also have to have the means to get food and be able to secure it. So it's food and job, which is why, which is why that chapter is called, which is called around food and jobs. Yeah. I mean, if you're hungry 
or you're malnourished because the food that you're getting is so poor. I mean, that has to come first. That will always come first before anything else happens. Um, and you're not getting ahead of yourself because I would love to jump into chapter four and the sort of, I don't know, what would you call it? Like the continuation of yep. that idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so chapter four, that chapter, so I, I knew I wanted to, I, I, it took me a long time to figure out how I wanted to bring the book to today. Because every time I was giving talks, everybody, every single question I got was, I, I, I wish I could like show like a, a B-reel or something, like a real, like, like every time everyone kept asking me, what about today? What about today? What What's happening today? And I was thinking about, I, I knew some things were going on in Mississippi across the state. But I didn't think about things that were going on right there in North Bolivar County. And I was at a conference in 2018, and that's when I learned about the rural Black youth who were who were trying to reestablish a local food system in the region. So once I ended up meeting the people who were working with them at the time, I actually called the I called the then executive director. And I, just, I, I got interested via email and, I, and she was, knew I was writing a book. And I was like, and I was like, I, I don't have any money to give you to do interviews. I, I don't think there's a price I could give, but there's something you all are doing in that region that I really want to be able to capture in, in my book because you all are, what you're doing is reminiscent of a past that you're not directly connecting yourselves to but you're so so connected to it because you're doing work on the same street that the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative was doing 50 years prior to your work beginning. And when I told them that they were, it just blew their mind because they knew a little bit about Elsie Dorsey and the, the women and some of the men and some of the, the youth were direct descendants of people who were a part of the cooperative. But as we said before, back then they were just doing it in the everyday. They didn't see the cooperative as being this big deal. They just saw it as we got to take care of ourselves and this is what we do to take care of ourselves. But connecting what I was seeing today to, to the past, it was it, it, it is almost divine in a sense because I was literally there and as I was observing what the youth were doing, I just kept thinking about their ancestors and and people before them who were thinking about these same kinds of questions. But so much has changed in the geography of the region. The plantation lines are no longer there. So things are blurred now. Uh, A lot of fast food restaurants and a lot of different things are happening. Dollar Generals are everywhere and things of that nature. But in chapter four, what I wanted to do, I, I wanted to show that the food story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement is ongoing. And when we, because re- I mean, people talk about the Civil Rights Movement never ended. We're still struggling with voting rights and education. So I was like, well, here we are. We're still struggling with this food question. And people are really trying to figure out how do we feed ourselves and take care of ourselves, recognizing that the people in power or those who are in power are not concerned about feeding us. So when I learned about the North Bolivar County Good Food Revolution, which is was chapter four, is the group in chapter four, 
I wanted to show what the youth were doing, but also I wanted to show how they were thinking about their futures and their lives beyond where they where they were and how they believed in themselves, but also how food is this. It's it's it, it's bigger than just something on their plate. It's bigger than just growing it. Food really is a canvas by which people can begin to rewrite new stories of their lives. And I wanted to focus on youth because they are the next generation of our communities. And we, in food conversations, we talk a lot about single mothers. We talk a lot about adults not having money to feed their kids. And we never talk about how the youth are also trying to take up this question and need support. But the questions they're raising are unanswered questions from the past. And what I liked about when I was writing chapter three with Elsie Dorsey, the activist, was that I end chapter three with her quote about if they were to do so in 1992, when she does this interview, she says, if we were to do the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative again, I would put youth at the center because they are the future of what we're trying to do. And we didn't do that then. So for me, I was like, well, now look, 50 years later, it's as if they have Elsie Dorsey's playbook and they are they're hitting the ground running with the youth. But this food question is still is still it's lingering because 50 years later, these communities still don't have the full autonomy and agency to decide when, where, and how they can access their food. And they're still struggling to, to make sense of that with things changing geographically, but the power structures have been able to recreate themselves over time. And that's what I wanted to do with chapter four was to show that in the same exact region, in the same exact location, People are continuing this story. And oftentimes when we think about food justice or these kind of food stories, we think about them in the context of urban communities. And these rural Black youth are doing amazing work as they're trying to continue this food story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. Um, And they are directly connected to it. And although they didn't necessarily connect themselves to the past, like in their conversations, I observed that exactly what they were doing is exactly, not exactly, but it was similar to what was happening in the past, but it looks different today. And I wanted to make sure I captured that connection and to show that this food story is active. And that's why I, I in the chapter I ended is that I have a lot more questions now that I've written this chapter because there's so many things that we have to really begin to reconcile around the future of food in these types of communities. And I wanted to capture how the youth were thinking about their futures because they are literally the 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 next generation of people who will live there if they decide to stay in their communities. Yeah, and I mean, their response is similar because the environment is still similar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talk about what we've now kind of shifted into is food apartheid. Yep. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about all those dollar generals popping yeah. up. <laughs> like... Yeah. And, and that's the thing about the, 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 I, I want to show the context. I want to show that 
the plantation, while the lines of the plantation have been blurred and we no longer see these big farm plantations, at least, the politics around that still kind of shape. You have food apartheid, but food apartheid also is a part of the fact that this region is soaked in soybean and corn and, and cotton, and people still don't have anything to eat in these communities that are nestled in between soybean fields and, and, and not so much cotton anymore like it once was, but a lot of soybean everywhere. But in between these communities, you have these 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 different conditions and circumstances that are shaping people's lives that are connected to the past, but the way in which it's showing up requires them to navigate an entirely different new game around trying to get food and trying to actually, but again, not just getting food, but also controlling the entire process of how we get food from the seed to our plates, um, to our different communities and things like that. And that's what I really wanted to, to capture in chapter four was how they're just picking right back up where we left off in the sixties. Um, but they have, they have blueprints, they have models of the past and how long this food story will last. I don't know. What I do know is that as we're having this conversation right now, the youth are, the youth have, the youth have bought, um, they've, uh, they've secured a larger farm in a different area of the County now. So they're doing new programming and practices and they're continuing on and things like that. And the executive director that I worked with, she actually unexpectedly passed away last year. So they've been trying to navigate what it looks like going forward for them. So I wanted to, I felt like chapter four was, I was, I was, I was blessed and grateful to meet the youth when I did, because I didn't expect my, my, I didn't expect that I would be able to make a direct connection from the past to the present. And I think that's the most, and for me, that's the most important part of three and four is that when you read them next to each other, you see like this is literally a direct connection from the past to the present. And if you want to know how the past shows up in the present or how the present shows up in the past, those two chapters have to be read together because of the direct connections and how I pick up the story where I pick it up at in chapter four. I can see why you have a lot more questions. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of questions, uh, a lot of questions. And, and and also the reason why I also ended with questions like thinking about the conclusion of the book is that I didn't, I don't want the reader to think that the food store is done. It's like, okay, we got it. Food store is over. We're going to go on and there's no more questions. No, I have a lot of questions actually. And I want us to start to really interrogate those questions. Um, and what does the future look like? for these communities and other communities similar to this. While I talk about the food story of Mississippi, there could be a food story of Louisiana, a food story of Texas, Georgia, you name it, because there's so different ways. But I wanted to be able to to end with a lot more questions because it's, it's a story that I've never read before. It's a story we never tell when we, when we talk about the past and the present. And I wanted to be able to, to end on a note where Actually, this is ongoing, and and we don't. I don't know where where we're. And also, I'm, I I wrote a book in a pandemic, so we all had questions. So, so it wasn't it wasn't like I was writing and these questions like, oh, why do you have questions? We have questions because the world is ending, and I don't know what's happening here, so I have questions because of where I'm in the world. So 
that's kind of a little, you know, kind of a little behind the scenes of writing the book is I'm thinking about a pandemic while ending a book about a food story. There's a sense of urgency. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. We have talked about so much with this book. Is there anything that we haven't talked about or anything that maybe you wanted to sneak in there that you couldn't get in the book that you would like to talk about? I'm going to give you the floor. I, there was so much I I couldn't put in the book. There were other cooperatives that were created. I mean, there are a number of stories. Writing about Mississippi in particular put me in a different space. So a lot of people asked me about the Black Panther Party. A lot of people asked me about the Nation of Islam and a lot of the work they were doing around food and farming. And I couldn't go into detail in this book, I couldn't recover it all. And and I and I I say that because I want my book to be read alongside other books about food and those organizations. And I want I wanted to contribute this part of the story because I realized whenever I talked about I was studying food in the civil rights movement, everyone kept saying to me, Oh, the Black Panther Party, oh the free breakfast program. Oh, you know about this. And I'm just like, well, you know, there's a lot that happened in uh, other states, and I want to be able to recover that particular story. So I couldn't put, I, I couldn't go in as detailed as I wanted to about some of those other initiatives. And also, I couldn't, because of the route I went in chapter two, which I'm glad I did, because originally in chapter two, I was going to take it from the the viewpoint of politicians. So I was going to write about, I've written about Jamie Whitten before. I've written about James Eastland, senators and representatives from Mississippi and their impact on food pro, food legislation. But I, as I was writing about them, the grocery store just kept coming up in my mind. And I was like, there has to be something deeper, deeper, deeper here. And as I kept digging more and more to the grocery store part of the story, as you read in chapter two, it's like, wow, like this is, whoa, I... I didn't know I was going to do all of this um, in a matter of time. So I think for me, I, I wanted to write more about politicians. And at some point I will do that. And at some point, I I think what I want to do is I want to take food power politics as a framework on the road. So I want to study food power politics in Northern California. I want to study food power politics in Georgia and Illinois and other places because there, there, these tensions between food power and emancipatory food power are showing up everywhere. But what it looks like in Mississippi, it might not look like in California or in Texas or the Dakotas or somewhere else. So for me, I want to or or not even me taking food power politics on the road. I hope that this book gives other scholars and other writers in general permission to look at, to think deeper about food and not just thinking about food as something that you see on your plate or you go to the grocery store and get. In fact, there are a number of of structures and people and actors and systems and structures that shape how we get food. And I hope that my book gives people permission to dig deeper. I think that's a great place to stop. And I just want to say thank you so, so much for giving me so much time to talk about this subject today. Oh, and thank you. I, I, I'm i glad. I, it's the first time I've had a chance to really walk chapter by chapter. So thank you for 
for engaging with me about the book.